Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Caram. You are listening to Roland Prant Method, where we're having a slightly different view tonight. We're actually going to be talking about trauma. Normally everything is fitness, mindset, well-being, performance and lifestyle design, but so many people out there are trying to optimize their life and they're not dealing with their past experiences or maybe they have someone that they care about that has been struggling with these issues. On tonight's episode, we have Adela Holmes, who is a therapeutic care and practice consultant, a wealth of knowledge, one of my mentors, and I'm very happy to have her here. Welcome, Adela. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Excellent. So Adela, you have a long history in the industry working with so many people. Can you summarise a little bit about your experience so people know who they're hearing from? Summarise it. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I'm pretty old. Um, I started, I've just clocked over 50 years in the child and family welfare field in general. Yeah. Um, Just at the end of December. So I started, and I wasn't two when I started, okay, <laughs> let's get that clear. Um, I started in direct care in one of the old-fashioned big institutions for young women. I didn't really quite know what I was doing and what I was getting into, but I had this passion for that I developed while studying to work with young people. So it's a bit... Weird. I so I kind of fell into this work yeah. because prior to that I'd been to drama school and I'd been a folk singer. Yeah, and I found that at your seventieth. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, and and I kind of realised that I wasn't going to make much money out of doing either um, because at that time and that we're talking about nineteen seventy two. Mm. I used to get paid five dollars a night wow. to sing in a coffee lounge, which was great fun, loved it, um, but not a lot of money. And so I was casting about thinking, well, what will I do? What will I do? And I read an article uh, in a paper. Um, it's the old Herald when it used to, you know, it used to be come out at night, the Herald. Um, and the article was on a residential childcare course. And I'm reading it. I'd always been a bit interested in psychology, Mm. read books loosely about psychology. Um, One of the best books I ever read was, uh, and I think I was only about 15 or 16 when I read it, was a book called Summerhill. And it was about uh, a school in the UK where kids actually became healed from problematic backgrounds and uh, was run by a guy called A.S. Neal and he worked in a very unusual way, very therapeutically. His work would be current today. Mm. So he was brilliant. Wow. He was, you know, way ahead of his time but it really made an impact on me. And I'm, you know, reading this article in the newspaper and I'm thinking, well, that sounds a bit like that. Um, So... I put in an application, um, got an interview. I remember (laughs) going for the interview. It's quite funny, actually. Um, There were I walked into the room, and you know you go for an interview, so you wear your best outfit. Mm. But I was a singer, yeah. So my best outfit was a brown and gold, sort of wavy print silk culotte suit, because it was my best 
clothing. Yeah. Uh, so I walk into the room and sitting behind a table were the three most conservative-looking people you've ever seen <laughs> in your life yeah. or I'd ever seen in my life. And my heart sank to my boots and I thought, no, nah, nah, they're never going to. Never, never in a million years are these people going to put me in their course. Um, so I got through the interview. I don't remember much of the interview. What I do remember is walking out afterwards and thinking, oh, well, yeah, put it down to experience. Um, and, you know, hitting the fence as I was walking along. I remember that really clearly. And, and I realised how wrong I was and how... I had expected they would judge me by what I was wearing, but in fact, they didn't. And they not only gave me a place in the course, but they gave me a bursary mm. of $20 a week. $20 a week in 1970 was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and so I was completely wrong. I was really out of order. And I hadn't believed in myself. So obviously that, you know, resonates for me now uh, in terms of some of the work that I do. But I got into it, did placements where I was working with young people and that was where I first learned that I knew how to talk to these kids. I just knew and everything I learned supported it. But there was something that, that was innate and then I just kind of built on that. So I did that course, which was one year. Then I did a course in welfare studies, which was like the next year. And I came out of that course in welfare studies with this real passion to work with really challenging kids because I'd learnt through all the placements and the study that I could. Mm. So I thought, okay, I can, I'm going to. I'm going to do it. Uh, and that was the beginning. So then I went and worked at this, as I say, this institution uh, and for young women and then uh, went to work at a place in the community for young women who, to avoid them being in institutional settings. Then uh, burnt myself out a bit in that, went back to singing, but still came back to it, mm. right? Came back about three or four years later, into child protection, did that, then still followed my pathway to working with those really challenging kids. When did Hurstbridge come up? Oh, much later. Oh, wow. Much later. So I worked in child protection, took some time off to have my daughter, who's now nearly 45. See, I told you I wasn't two when I started. (laughs) Um, and then came back into the field again, worked on a campus setting, worked, went back to child protection after three years. So I was kind of in and out of child protection. And it was during the 1990s, from like 1989 right through to 2000, when I think I really developed my skills in terms of understanding what were the needs of children and their families because if you're working I used to do case plan meetings with families and children together these were children who'd actually been removed from their parents care and I learned very quickly that there was so much shame in the parents that I had to find a way of speaking to that shame and helping it to go away because they couldn't change and they couldn't even look 
at what had happened while they felt shame. Wow. Nobody can. Uh, and so I developed a particular approach to case plan meetings that really went out of my way to help people deal with that shame at the start of the meeting and get it out of the way. Um, and that was during my time doing that that I studied family therapy at La Trobe Uni because I thought, Mm, this is good, you know, you can really work with families and you can heal what's going on in families. So I did that, graduated in that, and uh, then two amazing opportunities came my way. I feel privileged but also very proud that I had these opportunities. One was I was working by that stage at Berry Street and Berry Street was approached by a, a consortium of people to put in a submission for what was being called the Intensive Therapeutic Service. It is now known as Take Two. It's, quite, it's a well-known therapeutic service for clients of child protection. But then there was no such thing. And so I, I was working at Berry Street and we were the people who were going to write the submission and the CEO, I was a new kid on the block there, CEO said to me, I'll tell you what, Adela, you can write it. And I sort of sat there and thought, oh, well, this is either a very good career move if we get it or a very bad career move if we don't. Mm. But we did. You yeah, know? I can't tell you what else. So uh, that was really developmental for me because I had to use all the skills that I'd worked on and developed over the years and hone them and really bring them together and um, discipline myself to develop a model of intervention, design the way we would work if we were successful in getting this service. It was amazing. And uh, and we got it. Mm. Um and no one was more surprised than me. <laughs> I'm going, whew, whew, we got it. Uh, by that stage, of course, I was so connected with it that I really felt I had to move across and work in it. Mm. So I moved across to that part of Berry Street and for three years then worked on the development of that program uh, as one of the senior managers in it and absolutely adored that opportunity we did you know some really groundbreaking work and it was exciting but then because of the role I was in there at the time the department then wanted to develop the first therapeutic residential care pilot and because of the role I was in it fell to me at take two they came to us and said can you do it we said certainly uh, that fell to me to develop that. So, again, here the opportunity knocks, you know. <laughs> and this was, I think, 2005. I had to do an amazingly immense amount of reading and research. Places in the UK, all of my thinking, all of my reading about Summerhill, all those years before when I was 15, all came in handy because it helped me understand where I should look. And uh, so I read a lot about therapeutic settings in the UK and therapeutic settings in America, put all together all of the knowledge, put that knowledge together with what was emerging knowledge 
around trauma and healing young people from trauma, helping them to really turn their lives around, how to do it, how to make sense of what they do, because sometimes people look at what they do and they think, oh, you know, it's a bit challenging, it's violent, sometimes aggressive. But understanding what's happening in the brain because of trauma helps you to understand and make sense of and respond appropriately to what you're seeing there because you understand it differently. So that was 2005 when we put the model together and then it's the story of my life. I get so connected with things. I felt I had to go with it, you know. So... Um, and I was getting a lot of encouragement from the department too to apply for the role of managing it and getting it off the ground, which I got. And uh, for three years, from the middle of 2007 to... Uh, oh, actually, middle of 2006 to get it up and running to the middle of 2009, I did that job and I lived and breathed it for those three years because there was a lot of work in it. Mm. And there was a lot of misunderstanding around it too, uh, which we might get to or maybe not. Um, But we were very strongly using the work that was emerging from people like Dr. Bruce Perry, great great neurobiologist and psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, also a great specialist in terms of understanding trauma and particularly complex trauma, which I'll explain what that is in, yes. a, in a sec. Um, and also Dr Dan Hughes, who's an American psychologist, but who focuses very strongly on the impacts of trauma on attachment issues um, and a range of other theorists and uh, knowledge holders too, but very firmly grounding this in understandings of complex trauma and its impacts and using those understandings to develop healing approaches. Yes. So complex there's a the difference between trauma and complex trauma is yeah. this. I'm glad you got to this because I was about to ask you. Yeah, well here I am. It's a logical <laughs> it's a logical progression. Yeah. So Type 1 trauma, which is the kind of trauma, you know, that we would experience if someone came in this room with a sawn-off shotgun. I don't know about you, but... Or maybe you wouldn't. You you can handle yourself. Um, You know I've been in situations that I handle Um, well. (laughs) But uh, if someone came in this room, I certainly would be traumatised. So those kinds of traumas, one-off, maybe two or three-off, but um, they occur and impact on an already organised brain. Mm -hmm. So they're traumas that happen later in your life. And obviously the degree to which you've had a good grounding before then will determine how quickly you recover from that kind of a trauma. Mm -hmm. But complex trauma provides the organising environment for the brain. That's the difference. So complex trauma actually, if you want to put it in plain English, it's where your life is the trauma. Yeah, so it's developmental trauma. It's developmental trauma. Now, can you explain two things? What would consist of complex trauma or developmental trauma and how 
depending on the stage that it was experienced and to what severity, how it impacts the development of the brain. Yes. So, well, the brain develops from the bottom up. It operates from the bottom up too. So the most primitive part of the brain develops and organises first. So say, for example, if you have uh, an infant who, and, and I might say this is somewhat upsetting to hear, but fetuses can be experiencing trauma in utero and that has there was a fantastic piece of research that was done by Dr Bruce Perry and some of his PhD students in I think it was published in 2019 that talks about the impacts of uh, experiences of trauma on fetuses in utero but let's say you have you're in a violent family situation. So you're going to experience some level of trauma in utero uh, and then you get born. Now, the impact of trauma when you're developing is that your entire system is affected by adrenaline and cortisol overproduction. So your, your functional state is in a state of heightened arousal because of that. So if you're in utero and that's your experience, you're going to be born with a slightly poorly organised brainstem because it has organised in a heightened state. Mm. So some of the characteristics of infants who get born with those impacts are they are in a heightened state, of course, of hyperarousal. So, you know, they don't sleep well, they don't feed well, they don't settle, they're fidgety, they, um, they are not relaxed, they're not pleasing babies to hold, they don't respond in the same way. And no parent who is in that environment necessarily understands the impact of that on the infant. So the parent doesn't know and the parent's thinking, What's, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? If you're in a violent environment, what's likely to happen to a baby that doesn't sleep well, mm. doesn't feed well and is unresponsive? Mm. What's likely to happen is that they will be more harmed, at the very least yelled at by someone who's impatient with them handled roughly, not responded to, put down the other end of the house so that their crying isn't heard. Perhaps if they put down the other end of the house so their crying isn't heard, as a protective factor, they might also get forgotten about. Mm. So how does a baby get fed when it's hungry? It only has one way of letting you know, crying. So if a baby's cries aren't heard, up goes the arousal continuum again mm. because if a baby isn't fed, now the baby isn't thinking because they're not at that stage of brain development yet, but their state is one of dying, yeah. basically, amazing ceasing so to exist. promoting controlled crying oh, as a sleep therapy. Yes, um, and that's 
quite frightening, actually. Mm. Uh, go to a forum that's run by Bruce Perry and mention the word controlled crime yeah. uh, and you will see very quickly what he thinks of it. Um, there is n- no way that controlled crying is really controlled. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not saying that we can't, you know, uh, encourage a happy, contented baby to spend a few minutes fidgeting and maybe fussing while they settle. That's not what I would describe as trauma. Mm. But to leave a baby to cry and cry and cry and in some cases cry itself sick, that's trauma. Mm. Because how does that baby know what's going on? The theory may be that the baby will in inverted commas, which nobody can see, cry itself out. But what does cry itself out mean? It means some kind of conclusion about being unwanted, unloved, untended, and maybe ceasing to exist. Mm. So lots more work needs to be done in terms of helping parents to understand that when babies are crying, They're not crying because they're being ornery. They're not crying because of any other reason than they are in a state of some discomfort, whatever that might be. So it might be from being exposed to violence. It might be from being exposed to substances. It might be because there's difficulty in the attunement between the carers and the infant. But... It would not be because the infant wants to control you Mm -hmm. because that's far too sophisticated a level of thinking for an infant. Um, Later down the track, when the infant feels totally out of control, that may become a factor, but that's because of what we did earlier on. So, yes, controlled crying is not something that the, the theorists who understand complex trauma and brain development would ever recommend. Mm. Um, It's a very, uh, I suppose, controversial is probably the best word. It's a controversial issue. And there will be... hold on to these things, though. Even when you look at our physical punishment for a Mm. lot of things and people Mm. say, you know, I was hit as a kid and Mm. I turned out okay, but Mm. did you really? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? If you think it it was okay to hit a kid, did you turn out okay? um, Well, if someone hits you to control you, that control will only last for as long as you're little enough not to hit back, Mm. really. Um, We, uh, I often say this in my work with families because Often people uh, find it very challenging when children reach what is called the stage of individuation. So when they have to start finding themselves and when they start growing up, you know, the hormones are zotting around puberty, you're on the edge of puberty, you are going to want to define yourself. It's a natural part of growing up. But often, because it comes after a lengthy period of dependence and 
happy play, even allowing for two-year-old tantrums because mm-hmm. that passes in, you know, in an, a situation where all other things are equal and there hasn't been any trauma, that usually passes. Uh, and that, again, is a natural stage of development. It is a natural stage of wanting to assert one's self because you've suddenly realised you are a self. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about how it's managed that determines how it turns out. But then you go into middle childhood, happy days, playing, involvement in all sorts of good activities, occasional misdemeanours, that's life, that's normal, but nothing major. And then all of a sudden, puberty hits and it's like, who is this person? What is this demon <laughs> sitting here who rolls their eyes every time I say something? It, it's quite hard mm. for parents to understand if they're not ready for it, if they don't expect it. But in fact, we are children for a very short period of time. <laughs> we are only children before we're adults and we are adults for a very long period of time. And if you look at, you know, the rest of the mammals in the world, they tend to develop and develop into independence much more quickly than human babies. So human babies have this period of dependence which kind of lulls parents into some sort of false sense of security, I think. And then, of course, they have to grow up. Mm. We are designed to grow up. And you wouldn't want a person to pass into adulthood not having tested their capacity to think about things, disagree with the people who reared them, test out thinking, push back, become a part of their natural age peer group. All of these things, we all do it. We all did it. So all of these things are really natural stages, but many parents find it very challenging and almost see it as if there's something wrong with the child because they're pushing back. Yeah, that rebellious stage that mm. inevitably all children go through. Yeah, they will, they will go through it and our best way of approaching it, remembering that this is a natural stage which is manageable in any situation where there has not been trauma. It's a very interesting early way trauma. to put mm. it because I think... A lot of parents think that they're raising or they say that they're raising children, but they forget that they're actually raising children to become adults on Absolutely. their journey to adulthood. Absolutely. And they forget yep. the end goal. Yeah, it's end. A, yeah that's a yeah. very interesting way to put it. Yeah, and often um, I've said this to um, parents of friends of my daughters, you know, who are bemoaning things that their child is doing, and I have said to them, well, yes, but you wouldn't really want them to pass into being an adult without having tried out some of these things, would you? Because they'd be, like, lost. Mm. How would they cope in the world? And they go, oh, yeah. And, you know, I I will often say to my daughter, um, yes, the, the kids are challenging or they're pushing back, but that's actually a sign of a really great, adult in the making, Mm -hmm. a strong adult, provided it's all manageable and managed and not done in the context of trauma. 
Can you explain the difference between a normal, healthy, regulated child going through this experience, this rebellious stage, compared to someone that has experienced trauma? Yes. So um, going back to what I was saying earlier, if someone, an individual, has experienced early trauma, then their internal state, and this is neurobiological, physiological, psychological and emotional, all at once. So their state becomes uh, unlike the state of a person who hasn't experienced that. They are constantly producing more adrenaline, more cortisol, and they are in a state that is heightened. Mm -hmm. So it's heightened not just emotionally. Often people think, oh, they're very emotional. Well, they are, but they're very emotional because... Their entire physiology is heightened. That's very interesting because we've had a lot of people talking about the relationship between psychology and physiology and how they impact each other. Yes. And trying to regulate the nervous system. And this is in health. We're considered healthy adults, but when you explain what trauma really is, Mm. there's a lot of people that are pretty much traumatised and they haven't even considered the fact because maybe they weren't hit as a kid. Yeah. But what you described is a pretty common occurrence. Yeah. And I think what's also worth saying is that – Trauma, like every other, or complex trauma, like every other uh, experience, occurs on a continuum. Mm. So uh, the work of Gabor Mate, who's a a drug and alcohol specialist in Canada, talks about this a lot. He talks about the continuum, uh, not the continuum perhaps that I might commonly work with, which is... uh, young people who have an early life that has been extremely traumatic. But say young people where uh, there has been slightly faulty attachment or some issues, but significant enough to make them feel uncertain in the world, anxious in the world, not significant enough perhaps to render them being able to be said to have a mental health problem, but just on the borderline. So there might be people who are a bit uncertain in life, uh, who struggle with some things, but who are are also heightened to a point where they don't actually manage their, their lives very well, through to a continuum where perhaps they might seemingly have an anxiety disorder or some other kind of mental health issue. Mm. What Gabriel Mate talks about is that continuum, that end of the continuum, which is probably most many people, right? And many people who would not have been thought to have a traditionally traumatic, adverse childhood experience. 100%. Mm. And it's, it's very interesting because there'd be a lot of parents out there that wouldn't even know that they're having Correct. this sort of impact on their yeah, children. Because they wouldn't they're, know. They're both, uh, essentially, they're trying to manage their own state as best as yeah. they can, yeah. uh, but not realising the impact that it's having on a developing child. And, you know, in my years in child protection, I remember very clearly working with parents who perhaps hadn't had a terribly abusive experience but had been somewhat neglected. Um, who had maybe been left to cry, maybe even had been subjected to controlled crying as a a means of managing crying. 
and sleeping. Um, and those people don't necessarily understand what's gone on for them, what the experience has been. And so whatever they do, they do with the best intent. Yeah. And they don't have any real uh, grasp of how it's impacted on them and therefore how it might have impacted on their own parenting. I think they can agree that it was a negative experience when they reflect on it, but they haven't put two and two together. Yeah. That how it's impacting their life now, yeah. how it's impacting their parenting exactly. style and all the other issues like anxiety and things that come from yeah. it. Exactly. So can you explain the concept of what a heightened arousal baseline is? Because I originally learnt this before I met you through Stefan Friedrichsen from yeah. Light Lamp. We yeah. worked together there and got familiar with lizard brain. I love the term yeah. lizard brain. So can you explain that? Well, what it, what it, going back to what I was saying about how complex trauma provides the organising environment for the brain and that I also mentioned that the brain operates from the bottom up. Yeah. So it develops from the bottom up, but it also operates from the bottom up. So if you uh, have uh, a heightened state because of the constant production of cortisol and adrenaline and you are physiologically, psychologically, neuro and this is, be this is being driven by your neurobiology, by the way your brain is working – and, and then you're affected emotionally. So if you're in that state, it's very difficult for many people to actually A, recognise what's going on and B, take steps to get themselves better. You know, the good news is that you can get better. But when you're in that state, the more heightened your state of arousal, the lower down in your brain you function because... The primitive part of your brain is about survival. So Bruce Perry, it's pity there's no visuals on this, mm. Bruce Perry has a, a fantastic graphic called the arousal continuum. And it's like a box and it represents how the state that we are in physi physically, physiologically, impacts on our brains, first initially, but then functionally. So the more heightened we are, the more heightened our state on a constant or an occasional basis, it varies, the lower down in our brain we're able to function from. So here's a very practical example. I don't think there'd be anybody listening or in the world who has not been for a job interview, sat in that job interview, you're in a bit of a state when you, you know, you're nervous, that's, yeah. no that's normal. So... You're just a little bit further down in your brain than you ought to be to go to a job interview. But most employers or prospective employers know that, so they kind of make allowances for nerves, that's what they will call it. So they ask you a question and you sit there and you know you know the answer, but you can't find it. You cannot find it in your brain. And that is... A really good example, I think everybody's probably had that experience Definitely. once at least, that's a good example of how that operates because why does that happen? Because the best part of your brain, the executive brain function, is not fully on. Your nerves are affecting it. They are compromising its capacity. And then if you then get more nervous 
because you think, oh, God, they're going to think I'm an idiot now. You're going to get even further up the arousal (laughs) continuum and you're going to forget more things and you're going to become more concrete because you go down into the limbic system of your brain, which is where our emotions sit. Uh, Many other things are there, but I won't go into the detail of that. Um, But when you're in that place, you become concrete and reactive. That's the place you're at. And then the further down you go, the less smart you become. Bruce Perry has a beautiful way of describing this. He says, stress makes us dumb. We all have to learn how to manage stress. He talks about that a lot in his work. What he says is that we must have to learn how to manage stress. We have to have stress that is appropriately dosed for our developmental stage. Yeah, okay. And I imagine you'd have to have strategies to manage it. Well, if if you say, for example, are that baby who's left crying for many, many hours, then that is not dosed appropriately to your functional stage. If you cry and, you know, someone comes and says, oh, darling, you know, you're hungry and talks to you, those few minutes where you were crying, that's appropriate dosing of stress because something immediately comes after it to help you manage it. Yes. It's where nothing comes to help you managing it, that it all gets a little bit out of control. And people who are affected in that way are functionally in a state of hyperarousal pretty much all the time. This is a very quick story which I think demonstrates it. I was asked by a young person in care to help them understand why they did what they did. So it was a bit of a psychoeducation session. I said, sure. So we sat on a couch. She was telling me some things. I was explaining to her pretty much what I've just said. Uh, We talked for about an hour and I I thought, oh, we'll get my stuff together and we'll finish up. She said to me... "Um, Oh, no, don't go. I'm the most relaxed I've ever felt. And we had been talking about her brain and, you know, the things that I've been talking about here. And I said, well, well, that's interesting. Because one of the things I'd said to her was that your physiology gets affected and your heart rate gets affected. So if you're in a state of arousal, your heart's beating faster because you've gone down to your most primitive part of your brain, you're in survival mode and you're afraid. So I said, well, that's interesting because you've just said to me that you're the like calmest you've ever felt, most relaxed you've ever felt. And she said, yeah, yeah, I feel fantastic. And I don't know whether you know this, but you can download an app on an iPhone where if you put your forefinger up to the camera, it will tell you your heart rate. So I said to her, just try this because I'd be really keen to find out what your heart rate is. What Are you up for that? She said, oh, yeah, good idea. So she put her forefinger up against my phone and her heart rate was 110 beats a minute. And that was uh, the calmest she'd ever felt? Yes. Wow. Relaxed, she said. Her definition of relaxation. Yeah. So that was 110 beats a minute, which is sort of like after some level of exercise, right? Um, That meant to me 
what was she the rest of the time? Yeah, that's pretty you horrific know, to consider. Pretty high. But that's the physiology of trauma. Yeah. And when you're in that place, you can't think adequately. And you can't... So a lot of people look at challenging behaviours in young people and they think, oh, he knows he's doing that. He can control it. He can't. No. His thinking brain's shut off. It's not, not even... Yeah, no one home. Yeah. <laughs> All that is happening is a state of heightened arousal. Many, many people who work with young people say to me, oh, he just went off... You know, we were sitting on the couch and all of a sudden he went from naught to 100 in 10 seconds and I don't even know why. And number one, he didn't go from naught. No, he was already there. He was already <laughs> somewhere around, let's say, 85 to extend yeah. the metaphor. Yeah. Uh, and he had no idea what, what happened because that's the other thing about trauma. Anything People talk about triggering a lot, but the fact is that... Traumatic memory isn't like ordinary memory. We probably haven't got time to go into that in this session. We'll have you back, don't worry about it. But uh, traumatic memory uh, is much more easily re-triggered. So in a way it makes sense because it's about fear and primitive survival mechanisms. So what happens is that the state of arousal is heightened all the time, but some trigger... And it could be an internal state or something in the environment, could be anything, something will cue or trigger them to become even more heightened. Yeah. And, of course, that's what happens in those situations. But, of course, they don't go from naught to 100. Like a person who is in a state of hyperarousal is up there most of the time. Now, I think this is important to note that it might not necessarily be a bad thing that gets them to that fight or flight stage. No, I remember, I won't say not. the name, but yeah. many years ago, you were aware of a young person I was working yeah. with, and he was extremely heightened, and the organisation that was facilitating his work said, we're going to take him on a helicopter ride. Mm. And I said, I know how this is going to end. Yeah, badly. <laughs> I predicted it, and I explained my <clears throat> concerns, <clears throat> and it ended just the way that I anticipated that it yeah, would. because what are those things, high, high adrenaline activities? Yeah. You know, so it was just the experience and the adrenaline it produced that put him over the edge. So why do people chase those sensations if they're already heightened? Well, uh, people become quite addicted. Yeah. Not consciously, but addicted to sensations and it's familiar. Yeah. So it may not produce them something good in the long term, but remember, they're not thinking. They're chasing familiarity. We all chase familiarity. Yeah. Um, it's what leads us to do many, many things that we shouldn't do. Yeah. And a lot of people settle in toxic, mm. uh, maladaptive practices Absolutely. because it is familiar. Yeah. So it's that seeking of familiarity. Yeah. And one of the things I talked before about Hurstbridge Farm, which was the pilot that we started up, one of the things that we worked very hard on there and we had a, an environment that was designed to allow us to implement various different strategies wow. and see what worked best. That's amazing. What an opportunity to uh, play with it these. Uh, was. I wouldn't say play, but you could implement yeah. strategies yeah. and see how they work. See how things worked. And, uh, you know, it was evaluated and it worked extremely well, mm. produced really great outcomes for a significant percentage of the young people placed there. Not all of them, but 
a very significantly high percentage. But yes, when when you have those environments where you are able and have the luxury to do that work, we tried many different approaches to helping young people to feel relaxed, feel good about themselves, find a sense of safety internally because no person who has experienced complex trauma will be able to lower their state. I mean, they don't really lower it, but find themselves in a lowered state of hyperarousal that approximates to being normative yeah. uh, without feeling safe. Yeah. How could you? So safety must come first. Safety is the key. Before they're able to regulate themselves. Absolutely. Safety and predictability is one of the key elements of any trauma healing environment. Wow. And it takes, that is not easy to produce. It's interesting how, just thinking, even for adults, but. A lot of people, obviously, that have experienced trauma, they are in negative, uncertain environments, often hostile environments. Even mm. when they're in adolescence and young adulthood, they mm. find themselves in these places. And then when they get locked up, for example, and they have that routine and that system and they're away from substances, they are unsafe, but there is that fam- familiarity to a degree yeah. and a bit of a routine. And they're, I know from my personal work with that, they're regulated the best I've seen them, considering mm. any other time that I've seen them. Mm. And, you know, it's wonderful when you start to see, and you start to see it in a very nuanced way. You know, we started to see kids who were not running away yeah. or maybe were going to run away but then sort of stopped. I, I remember one young man who was riding a bike up the driveway. He'd had some an experience that day that had brought him into contact with the self he had been. He was actually doing very well up to that point. He'd been with us about, I don't know, four or five months. And then I'm standing putting stuff in my car. He's riding up on his bike. He saw me. Now, he he had split second of thinking to do because if he really wanted to go, he would have just kept riding because I'm not going to be able to run after him. But he didn't. So what he did was, and this is the role of relationship in helping kids to heal from trauma, he did a screaming yui up to me and he said, I feel like nicking off. And I said, do you? And I thought, like, my mind's going, what's going on here? And I thought, well, okay, he's, asked, he's telling me because he wants me to say don't because otherwise why stop? You know, so that's all going through my mind. So I said, don't. I really don't want you to. You t- Tell me what is, you know, what's making you feel like going. Now, by that stage, he could. He could just say it, right? He, could, uh, he couldn't tell me why. Mm. I think I knew why because he touched his old life a bit uh, and the draw of familiarity. Um, and I said, look. You know, you work so hard, you're doing so well. Have you just had dinner? Yeah. I said, you must be feeling really good. Um, I really don't want you to run off and be unsafe. You know, I like you to be safe. I keep telling you that. And you could see the cogs turning in his mind as he was thinking about what I was saying. And he said, but I feel like it, I feel like it. And I said, I'll tell you what. 
And see, we had this luxury because we had many staff, very good staffing ratio. And I said to him, if you really think you must go into the city and see it, I'll get, and I mentioned one of the staff, to take you. But I really don't want you to go on your own. He said, all right. <laughs> so I called the staff member on the internal phone. I said, do you, do you feel like a drive this evening? He said, sure. So, you know, he said, let me get my clothes together and my coat on. And um, so I'm chatting away. By this stage, this boy is helping me put the stuff in my car. So he's put the bike down. He's saying, oh, give me that. I'll do that for you. And so he's happily engaged in doing that. Staff member arrives. He doesn't even look up, you know, and he's still putting stuff in the car. And the staff member says to him, well, are we going or what? (laughs) And he then says to the staff member, oh, Oh, all right, (laughs) as if he's kind of doing him a favour. So what had happened in that interaction is he'd come right up into a better part of his brain. Yeah. Now, it was a pathway we'd already started building, but it was still a bit flimsy, but he was able to be taken there. So we did actually encourage him, even though he was losing interest in it, We said, no, go, because, you know, we don't want you later on in the evening to say, oh, I wish I'd gone. Yeah. He'll take you. And, you know, he was home in bed by 20 past 11 that night, felt satisfied, insisted on ringing me because they all knew that I kept very late hours, um, always have, (laughs) Um, ringing me and making sure I knew that he had done like he'd abided by his agreement Mm. and I said well done but of course all these things matter when you're building faith and trust and safety those little things like I really must call Adela are important and had they said no that would have actually been quite hard for him and these are the sorts of things harking back to the beginning of my story about Summerhill and the way that kids were healed at that school, um, these things matter. The tiny things matter when you're building a sense of trust and safety. And sometimes, you know, people might say, oh, but it was at 11 o'clock at night, but you've got to use good judgment and knowledge of trauma and how to heal it to make the decision about, will I take the call or won't I take the call? In another situation, I might not have because I didn't need to. But in that situation, I did need to, and it worked. You know, that young man went home, lived at home, went back to mainstream school, all good. What a success story. Mm. And it's very interesting about looking at connection that a lot of these young people are lacking and Mm. safe connections where they Mm. don't feel safe and someone allowing them or holding space for them to experience negative emotions because it's scary for them. Yes. And they've been conditioned to express themselves through aggression, through violence, through other strategies. It's the only way they know. That's what they know. That is their language. Yeah. I know from kids that I've worked with in the past that still reach out to me to this day, it is the relationships that you build and watching them transition and find other ways to manage their emotions. Mm. And that feeling of safety, Mm. 
it's amazing that you are, you've offered so many people, so many young people that mm. you educate people, facilitators, how to do that. Mm. So can you explain that we're running out of time and I have to have you back because mm. it went very quickly. <laughs> I want to understand, uh, can you explain about co-regulation? Because we've had a lot of people talking about regulation on the show. Yes. And how they can learn to regulate through breath work, through various mm. other cognitive behavioural therapy that mm. works. Uh, a lot of, some top down, some bottom up. Mm. What is co-regulation? Co-regulation really relates to very early stages of development because when you uh, are attaching with carers and, you know, in the old days, with the days of John Bowlby and the first attachment specialist used to be called the mother. But, of course, we know that, you know, parents co-parent, other cultures have aunties and uncles and grandmas and all sorts of close relatives who care for children. So it's not just the mother, but whoever the people are who are most frequently with the child and to whom the child is developing attachments. Those relationships provide co-regulation. So if a, a baby's heartbeat will become attuned to the heartbeat of the mother, for example. So an unregulated parent will really struggle to raise a regulated child. Can't can't possibly. Yeah. And a a child Mm. can't learn to regulate if their parents aren't regulated. Correct. Because they've got no one to model from. Mm. And the the co-regulation is physiological and not within the realms of thinking. Mm. So... Cognitive work, although there is a place for cognitive work, cognitive work can only be successfully applied where regulation in the individual is able to be achieved because, going back to the brain operating from the bottom up and stress making it go downwards, if you are under some level of stress and you've, let's say, been to anger management or some other cognitive approach, the time when you most need it is the time when you're least able to use it. Mm. Because if it's called anger management, the time you need it is when you're going up there because you're going down in your brain. So if your primitive part of your brain is in survival mode, it's not able to think to the point of saying, oh, what was it that Dr. So-and-so said last week in anger management? It's not there. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. I had this chat with a lot of young people, and I know you're aware of it. Mm. I learned it from Stefan about lizard brain. Mm. And I talked to him like, would you let a lizard run the company? And mm. there was a little bit of biology understanding what happened to the brain and the fact that the smart mm. brain was turned off and they were operating like a lizard. Mm. And I'd just say, are you going to let the lizard run the company? And mm. they'd be like, oh, I'm being a lizard. I remember one of the kids I worked with, he goes, man, this place is full of lizards. When we were in the <laughs> I, prison, I, I, like, he's like, mm. all the lizards are all here. Like, I yeah, remember that. It was very funny, but we could actually just, that reference from lizard brain mm. could actually help bring him down. Yes. Like it, it actually became a bit of a... A key, if you like, yes, and it helped him regulate, and then yes. he could actually process. And this particular young person that I first started experimenting with this concept with, he, we ended up going in and accepting a school suspension and going back mm. to class and things that previously would have been unheard of, mm. simply by having that bit of education mm. and also be having that support and that relationship mm. that I have with him. Mm. Depending on the relationship that you've developed with a young person, you can use elements of humour too 
in terms, as you did with the lizard brain um, analogy. And I once suggested to a therapeutic worker to uh, do a picture of a a really snazzy-looking sports car with a lizard behind the wheel driving it to give to a young person who was very regularly stealing cars and crashing them into things. Um, (laughs) She said, what do you think so? And I said, well... I think, yeah, I think your relationship with him is good enough to give it a go. So she took it to him. He was actually incarcerated at the time. She laminated the picture and he asked for permission to put that up on the wall of his room from the staff. Now, I call that a success. Definitely. Adela? Mm. We have pretty much run out of time. Yes. And we haven't even got into how to heal from no. trauma. There's so much. We Are you happy to come back? I'd love to come back. Yeah. I've really enjoyed talking I've thoroughly about enjoyed this. the chat, yeah. both per- uh, personally and professionally, and I'm yeah. sure our listeners have as well. well so I there's hope so, so much information out there um, or that you're providing. We want to start delving into what people can do and yeah. what trauma can be misdiagnosed as. And, yes. Uh, so there's so much stuff, so I definitely need to have you back. Definitely, and love to come back. And if I can say one thing, though, yes, that with complex trauma, it is absolutely possible to heal. And it doesn't matter. If you can change your brain, every time you learn a new phone number, you change your brain. You can change your brain until the day you die. It just gets harder the older you get, mm. but never impossible. Thank so, you for that ray of hope. That you know, I, I think a lot important. of people will be very happy to hear that. Mm. And we're going to explore how to do that how the next that. time we have you on. Yeah, I'd love to. Fantastic. Okay. So how, how can people get in contact with you if they want to reach out? Um, well, probably via your program, I think, yeah, would be excellent. that you can provide them with details. Perfect. Anyone yeah. contact me through Ron Pratt Method and I'll put you in contact with Adela. Thank you, Adela. No problem. Night, everyone. I've really enjoyed this. Good night. Hi, everybody. This is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisce about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes. Oi, 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 oi. IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker.